Hi, and welcome to Film Fam, inspired by true events. I'm Heather. I'm Brian. And I'm Zoe. We are the Greys, and we're your Film Fam. For today's companion mini-sode to our Nosferatu episode, we are so excited to welcome, for a second time, horror writer, playwright, scholar, audio drama producer, Jamison Reidenauer. Yay. Hello. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Jamison. Thank you for being our first returning guest. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. Last time we had you on the podcast to talk about Frankenstein, but you're actually more of a vampire guy. Yeah, I like vampires a lot. I've done a lot of work on vampires. <laughs> What's some of the work you've done? I've done... Um, uh, the biggest work I've done is, uh, well, I worked with Dracula on my dissertation and on my, my book on London, in Darkest London. I've got a chapter on Dracula in that. Um, but the, the m- most fun I had was editing the Valancourt edition of uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, um, which was just a blast. Uh, I did that. That came out in 2009. And then I've also written... Um, I've published an essay on Carmilla and the Swedish vampire film Let the Right One In, which came out in yeah. the collection about vampires in 2013. And and then I just watched lots of vampire fiction. I've taught Dracula probably 20 times in my career. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I did a series of lectures about vampires for the North Dakota Humanities Council. Um, it's just, it's my jam. So you're probably <laughs> the the main guy that yeah. <laughs> definitely the main guy we know to talk about vampires with back in Jamie, i right. noticed you said uh, let the right one in instead of let me in uh i wonder if you had opinions on how it was adapted for the american audience i, I feel well let the right one in is my favorite vampire film of all time i, I think oh, wow. i think i think it's amazing um it's closely followed by uh, a 2012 film with saoirse ronan called byzantium by, by Neil Ooh. Jordan, which is... I have not seen that oh, one. Oh, man. Gemma Atherton and Saoirse Ronan. It is amazing. Um, but Let the Right One In is probably my, my top one. And I think it was... I think the adaptation was fine. I, I like I like Chloe, Chloe Moretz. Um, I think the... Um, it was weird to me, if you, except for a few choices, which I understood. There was big chunks of that film that were... I wouldn't call an adaptation. They were shot-for-shot remakes, like the framing and editing and everything was the same. And I didn't understand why you would... It was remade? Yeah. (laughs) That segues into our talk about Nosferatu because we have the original silent film and then we have the remake with Werner Herzog. Okay, but I love the Werner Herzog remake. (laughs) I like that remake. I like both of them, but that is at least going from, you know, it's really changing because it's not a silent film anymore. Right, it's in color. And and, and it's Werner Herzog, so it's like a real director yes. trying Some to bring something. shot by shot. Um, yeah, it's not like they made Nosferatu in 1921 and then in 1925 they remade it, you know? I, I mean, it, it right. is it is sort of the the Herzog, the Klaus Kinski version is, is like a, an homage to, the, to a, a film that was a classic by that point. So that doesn't bother yeah. me quite as much. No, Um, I I like both of them, and I like that they both exist. As someone who just kind of worked on, not like adapting, but working on Carmilla, I mean, I don't know, it's not, it's a translation, it's a, you know. No, it's just an addition. I just just wrote the footnotes and and put all the contextual stuff and wrote the introduction. Right, well, as someone who just worked on it, did you, were you... um, 
in on that uh like did you know about that youtube series version of carmilla that came out because i was really into that for a while like before i read your edition which i picked up at a bookstore and was like i i know him (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's so cool i was i was just looking for carmilla and i had no idea but i love that because it it was really adding something yeah and it was contextualizing it for a contemporary audience and bringing vampires in i i don't know i think there's something about um it's very easy to do queer readings of vampire texts because I don't know. Do you want to tell me why? <laughs> because they're queer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to do a, a queer reading of Carmela because they're they're explicitly well, yes. lesbian. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think the I think the Carmela YouTube series was great. I mean, obviously, it wasn't you know it wasn't scary and it wasn't it wasn't meant produced. to be it wasn't right. professionally produced but it was good enough i really enjoyed it and, and it did you know one of the things that i feel like adaptations ought to do it made you go buy the 1872 carmilla which you've yeah. now read oh, yeah. so rock on right um no i love that adaptation i mean i think vampires are um vampires are are transgressive and right. sometimes that means queer all the, um it's more explicitly queer in the latter part of the 20th century into now than it was earlier on but even dracula can be read pretty pretty queer in in places um the the book that does this really well that explores this really well um up through 96 when it came out is by nina arbach it's called our vampires ourselves and arbach's Arbach's thesis is basically that vampires have have staying power because they adapt to whatever the cultural fear is at the time and so dracula is about transgressive sexuality it's in the late victorian era and it's there's a lot of um you know lucy's pretty much punished for being promiscuous even though she's not actually promiscuous but she thinks about it which is enough apparently (laughs) um and and then you get um you get all kinds of different permutations throughout the the 20th century and you get sort of self-involved um individualistic vampires in Anne rice in the mid 70s and you get queer vampires explicitly queer vampires in poppy z bright's lost souls in 1992 when when uh thought or cultural ideas about homosexuality are coming bubbling more to the surface at that point so we just kind of change what what our vampires are and sometimes you know they go flaccid and ridiculous like in twilight but for the most part they they're reflecting real fears and but those fears change the things that that we are kind of anxious about as a culture the vampire tends to reflect so what do you think they were to murnau what do you think it was in nosferatu that was the the cultural fear at the time i think with murnau um it's not as much about vampires as it is about German expressionism in general. Um, And so after World War I, um, a lot of horror movies deal with grotesque characters and deformed characters and uh, bodies that are misshapen or deformed somehow. Um, And that is a sort of, there were a lot of people like that. I mean, after World War One, there were a lot of uh, people returning from the war that had been horribly maimed. That were, and then there is sort of a, particularly in America, you know, not something that you talked about. You wanted to celebrate that we won the war, and let's don't talk about the uh, the horrible consequences that we've had. So you see this um, eruption of films that deal with deformed bodies and bodies that don't look the way they're supposed to. This is the rise of Lon Chaney Senior, the Man of a Thousand Faces, who always kind of 
warped himself somehow. Um, and I feel like the same thing is going on. Um, Germany is, you know, and Eastern Europe both are, are have just had the shit kicked out of them. And they're, um, they're expressing, uh, surrealism in general deals a lot with half bodies and bodies that aren't quite where they're supposed to be. And, and, uh, you know, even like Picasso, who's starting at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, that's what I think is going on. Um, and I could be wrong. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a long history of, uh, genre art, uh, making, uh, I don't know, I guess heroes and villains. Uh, according to what people are scared of right then. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you've got Godzilla and so many of the Marvel heroes and villains reacting to radiation yep. after World War II. And, but then when they make the Tobey Maguire version of Spider-Man, he's written by, uh, he's bitten by a genetically modified mm. spider. Right. It's, uh, I don't know, it's it's CRISPR. It's, it's something that people now might be afraid of. Yeah. I think it's interesting though, because vampires are what, Maybe mm -hmm. um, what we're afraid of, but also people want to become vampires mm -hmm. because yeah. of the immortality and the, in some cases, the sexuality or the raw strength, you know, while at the same time it's, it's dealing with our fears. When I write about vampires, one of the central things I talk about, particularly in books like Carmilla, is, is the, the tension between attraction and repulsion, which is kind of at the heart of the vampire myth. Um, for exactly the same reason that you're that you're saying there, there's a scene early in Dracula where Jonathan Harker is is trapped in the castle, and he's the three vampire women come to him, and he he pretty much pretends to be asleep, like like he doesn't know what they're gonna do, but they're sexy women who appeared out of nowhere, and he knows he's not supposed to be in this part of the castle, and he literally says, you know, I just I waited in shivering anticipation, so like like I'm not supposed to be here, but and he could have got up and left, but he's like, let's wait and see what happens, and, and yeah, but anticipation isn't fear, no, it's like not, it's not like I waited terrified of what they're gonna do, no, it's it's like oh let me see what what I'm you know oh help I'm at your mercy, let me see <laughs> let, uh, let me see what. What's about to happen? Um, oh, yeah, shivering anticipation. Sh shivering anticipation. Purpose, yeah, could exactly. Could be read both ways. Yeah, and so and Carmilla does the same thing at the end of Carmilla. Laura, the protagonist, says that that she sometimes imagines she hears the footstep of Carmilla at the door, and and it's really hard to tell whether she hears it in dread or in or hopefulness. Um, so that's very much part of the vampire. I don't think it's part of Nosferatu though. Well, because there's very few moments where he is that, like, Byronic Dracula figure. He's not sexy. I mean, he's, he, animalistic. he's really not sexy. There is, like, one scene where he's, like, drinking her blood from her neck for, like, an un uncomfortable Uncom amount of time to see <laughs> right, on screen. Right, right. Like, truly like just so long. Um, and it's, like... There, yeah, I think there is something about like the feeding that it always feels kind of it's intimate. It's like very intimate, yeah. but the way he is made is never. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel I like I pity him and I care for him at times, but I'm never like, man, I got the hots for not not yeah, for yeah, no, like, nobody <laughs> does. And 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 Nina, the character Nina, um, Greta, um, what's her name, Greta. You know, Greta, I, well, the I, actress I'll, Greta. But all I can think of is Greta Gerwig. <laughs> and obviously, oh, no. that's not it. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember the actress's name. Um, but she's also not a typical vampire victim because she doesn't have that attraction repulsion. She is, is actually a, right. a lot more empowered than a lot of other women in vampire films. She wants to kill him. 
and she is disgusted by him and repel repulsed by him so yeah that feels missing he feels very much a part of the folkloric vampire and not the byronic right. vampire right yeah that's Greta what... schroeder yeah just so we what, <laughs> what did you, what the... you say oh. Greta Schroeder. Greta Schroeder, thank you. Yes, yeah. that's correct. That's one of the things we talked about in the mm-hmm. podcast is like the different lines, the the Dracula line and then the Nosferatu line. And you can you see them in different types of movies now, like 30 Days of Night mm-hmm. or in what we do in Shadows, the Peter character, you know. <laughs> God, I that, love Peter. That, yeah. <laughs> um, rather than he, he being like, sexy byronic long hair with the cape you know he's yeah. kind of like a rat <laughs> yeah that's a, it's a completely different line of vampire and the mm-hmm. um so the folkloric vampire i don't know how much do you want to know about the folkloric vampire i mean um, let's do it please so, tell me yes <laughs> so I, I keep i keep referring to books but the book you want then is by paul barber it's called vampires burial and death and and it's like that. and it sums up a much older book that you probably don't want to read, and I've read it, so I promise you, you probably don't want to read it. Um, but it, by uh, a monk uh, in the 18th century, wrote a book called um, the uh, Revenants, I think it's called. Um, the and his name was Augustin Calmet. And so, what happened in the 18th century, um, in the age of the Enlightenment, um, th- they were persistent. Uh, ideas from rural areas of vampires and we think they're probably in response to plagues um like you know uh, someone dies of a plague and then lots of other people die from the same thing and and the the rumor goes around that he's you know coming back from the dead and whatever so in an effort to quell these ridiculous um rumors um people from the enlightened cities sent out doctors and um people uh who were affirmed by the court to be witnesses to prove that this is wrong and so they would go out to these rural villages in eastern europe largely and uh where they were going to exhume a vampire so they could witness and say okay you know here we are we're the scientists this is why this is how you're wrong and they all came back and said oh my god it's true we were there and we saw the vampires and they were real um because what happens to a corpse when it's in the ground is uh and this is fun um rigor mortis fades away which they apparently didn't a lot of people didn't know at that point um blood settles in various places um sometimes around the mouth um the t- uh, your your tissues shrink as as moisture goes away so it looks like your teeth have gotten longer it looks like your hair has grown it looks like your fingernails have grown um and the body bloats with um with uh gas so this is, is pretty gross but this is what happens so you open a coffin expecting to find a vampire you find a guy that may have moved because the gas moves the body a little <laughs> bit um he's got blood around his mouth um his teeth have grown long and sharper so you stake him and the staking actually forces gas up through the vocal cords and he groans oh, and blood shit. explodes from him. Yeah, okay, um, so like, you know, you're in that time period. You're like, yeah, the confirmation. We just killed that vampire. <laughs> just killed that vampire. So you had all these like official guys go down there, you know, doctors go down to see we're going to disprove this. And they all came back saying, oh, my God, <laughs> they're right. So this monk, Augustin Calmet, writes this long, detailed um, book listing all these different incidences where this has happened and he's writing it because he's trying to reconcile his faith in god with what he 
seems mm-hmm. to be scientific proof of the undead. And he doesn't really resolve it. Um, he writes it in Latin. A hundred years later in 1850, it gets translated into English by a guy, I swear to God, named Henry Christmas, the Reverend Henry Christmas. <laughs> and Sheridan Le Fanu owned a copy. We know this. And um, it was a bestseller for some reason. People really dug it in the 1850s. And so a lot of people read it and it became this sort of undercurrent, under the Byronic hero, it became this big inspiration for another genre of vampire fiction, which was the the nasty, Varney the Vampire was a really popular. Right, right. Yeah, so Varney was was a, a, a walking corpse, right? They're much more like Night of the Living Dead. So that's what Nosferatu is, I think. Um, not we're talking the, about not plague a lot when we're talking about it, you know, because he's so associated in the movie with plagues and with rats. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it felt it felt pertinent now. I don't know if the new wave of vampire movies is going to be, oh, you know, coming back to a plague. Nosferatu but... <laughs> was right after the uh, the Spanish flu. Yeah. And now, and and there was uh, there was some analysis about the appearance of the character itself as looking rat-like uh, and there being so many rats as a central part of the film uh, in order to make that connection with uh, between plague and vampires and it's a traditional um connection to you know going back to the original ideas but yeah it was the perfect time for it um so yeah that that's absolutely operative i think and he looks he looks like a rat and he also looks like a plague victim right he's emaciated and he's um again he's a he's a walking corpse he's not He's nobody's suave lady killer, right? <laughs> right, which is an interesting take on for like how much they were like, you know, stealing. Murnau, yeah, Murnau had to change things, but really didn't want to, and like changed a a, a minor amount, you know, not enough to not get sued and have <laughs> all the copies, almost all the copies destroyed. But yeah. he, you know, that's a a big change to me from the. Dracula of the books. I mean, I think about like my favorite scene in Nosferatu in both versions is that scene at the table, right? And then he he uh, cuts himself, and Nosferatu or Count Orlok goes goes to Jonathan and is like overcome. And Thomas Hutter in this one, Thomas <laughs> yeah. Hutter, the Jonathan character. I'm, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> um, and it is animalistic in a way that I think is like a, only one facet of the Dracula from the novel. There are definitely animalistic moments of the Dracula from the novel. I mean, when I read it, I like knew all this vampire stuff. I'd been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer since I was <laughs> legitimately probably two years old. Um, <laughs> there's video and, proof. And Buffy but, had the Byron the master. type. Oh, and, and the master. Also. The yeah. master, right. Yeah, the master. But, but there were, but I was shocked in the book when I saw like, mom, like um, I don't know, stuff I had never seen in a vampire before of like, climbing up the wall on all fours like yeah. i was like that's frightening like and and going into nosferatu like i feel like that's more of the vampire that we see in nosferatu like this um yeah almost like an animal he's or, scary he's a scary right, even, even now scary. he's scary <laughs> yeah I, I agree and and i think i mean i think people that haven't read the original novel dracula don't realize how unsuave and un i mean he's byronic he has a long white mustache and (laughs) his teeth his teeth stick down over his his his, uh lips and and they they're really clear how bad his breath is they say that several times his breath (laughs) reeks uh, because if all you eat is blood of course um but and he's dead but so yeah he's he's not um he's not uh 
uh, Gary Oldman, you know, from from the nineteen ninety three right. Dracula. It's not not what he is at all, but he's but he's also not quite. He also can pass, right? He can walk around in society and be okay. And I don't think Count Orlock could. No, no. There's a hilarious little moment of him just of in Nosferatu of Count Orlock carrying his coffin out, yeah. like looking from side to side, like where do I go with this? Right, right. Awkwardly right. walking <laughs> off, like yeah. he could not exist in no. society. No, but he <laughs> exists enough. That he, like we said, he is the basically the the one classic horror monster who um, really gets involved in real estate. <laughs> that, you know, he's 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 dealing in in his real estate, which you know you don't really see like the mummy or Frankenstein's right. monster buying real estate. But that's from the book. Um, Jonathan Harker right. was a real estate agent. That's why he was in Transylvania to sell him a house. Which yeah, I, I think that's great. I do too. I think Nosferatu is. Um, to be the age it is, it is a surprisingly creepy film. Um, because you don't... Um, uh, Stephen Cohen's Monster Theory from the late 90s, which is really great. And um, he's got seven theses on how monsters function and, and basically has to do with, Ooh, the, with them being liminal. Like with them standing in... in you know, they're they're not dead and they're not alive. They're not, you know, they're they're in kind of a an in between space. And one of those places that they're in between is they're they're right at the threshold of becoming a new thing. So when Poppy Z. Bright writes Lost Souls in the early nineties and the vampires are all kind of gay and gender fluid emo kids or goth kids, um, that's something that was culturally anxious at the moment but was about to shift into a little bit more acceptance or a little bit wider kind of ideas. So in the same with like the sexuality of Dracula in the 1890s, that, that we get these monstrous representations of the things that are about to transform. Um, well, no wonder then that vampires are, are so queer or so like, no wonder, you know, like I as a kid and lots of people I know were like obsessed with vampires. Maybe it's, you know, coming out of if vampires are always associated with the new thing that people are afraid of but is on the cusp of becoming societally accepted like you know there's a lot of people that are like fuck yes like okay i (laughs) i'm i love it like if this is your fear like this is my i'll totally like embrace it um do you have any um, shows or anything coming out soon that uh, you could tell us about? Um, we are uh, entering the second half of season four of Palimpsest right now. We're coming out every two weeks. Um, so we're, and in, in, in production-wise, we're about ready to record the last two episodes, but I think episode six just came out. Um, and then after that, um, if you're local to Asheville, North Carolina, my play Bloodbath opens in October. October eighth. Oh, so oh, exciting! So yeah. That's the next thing. I want to. I want to see it. Come on yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I will. Road trip. Yeah. Or or you could live. We might. Zoom I don't know if it. we're. I don't know. We might be doing that. I'm not sure that you know the the theater company I work with pivoted really quickly to live streaming, um, in uh, during the pandemic and did a pretty good job with it. So I don't know if they're going to continue to live stream or not. If you can hook that up, we will help. Okay, I will let you know. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. 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 Good night. Like Film Fam, inspired by true events, subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at filmfampodcast, on Twitter at filmfam underscore podcast, and on Facebook at filmfam inspired by true events. 
If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you would like us to explore, you can email us at filmfampodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.